if Minister Farrakhan catch you, nigga, grabbing your dick, talking shit like me, he'll whoop your ass, nigga. I can't nobody whoop my ass, nigga. Yeah, fuck you, motherfucking nigga. And then fuck you, Muslim niggas overseas. All you Muslim niggas overseas that write with the lines and the scribble scrabble words and don't use letters, fuck you. You ain't done nothing to George Bush. He went over there and knocked down Saddam Hussein's statue and took you motherfuckers all well. Fuck you, Muslims over there. And you Afghanistan Muslims, you ain't still been able to beat America, nigga. I am a natural-born American citizen, and we hate Muslims. I am a natural-born American citizen. I put my hand over my chest when they sing the national anthem. I think it's disgraceful for any nigga to kneel when that white boy national anthem come on and you niggas ain't killed no white boy to kneel. Yeah, kill a white boy to kneel. Nigga, to the end, stand up and put your motherfucking hand over your heart and sing that motherfucking national anthem with us, nigga. You, you, You go to McDonald's, don't you? Yeah, you niggas say, man, fuck you. I ain't never in my life met a motherfucking Muslim at the family reunion. Never. I ain't never met a goddamn Muslim at the family reunion. It's all niggas. And when we get through praying at Christmas in the family reunion from mama to mama seal, nigga, everybody hollering in Jesus' name. I ain't never in my life heard a motherfucker scream, assalamu alaikum, till I landed in jail. Yeah, yeah, I ain't never heard a motherfucker say, assalamu alaikum, till a nigga went to jail. Yeah, they didn't know what the fuck that was. So all you niggas take your motherfucking ass to the penitentiary, go down there, read some books, fuck you a few niggas, or fuck you a few punks, or have you a few fights, smoke you some weed, drink you some hooch. When you get through tired of fighting and fucking punks, you niggas want to pick up the Quran. And, and, and have Jumar services every motherfucking Friday. You niggas ain't no real motherfucking Muslims till you can put a bomb on your back and one of you niggas blow your ass up. Nigga, them the real motherfucking Muslims. Until you niggas blow your ass up, fuck you niggas. I ain't scared of now motherfucking Muslim that's part of a Muslim group and they ain't on the white boys terrorist list over there in Cuba at the Guantanamo Bay facility. Yeah, you niggas go to federal prison. Fuck you niggas. All you niggas went to federal prison, did what that white boy said do, and you niggas cried like a motherfucker in that federal penitentiary system, nigga. And you left your kids behind here. I ain't never left my kids out here with this big old dick, nigga. Some of you niggas, I done fuck a lot of you nigga bitches in that jailhouse, catching them in the visitation room. My brother been in prison for 30 years. You know how many bitches I done fucked in 30 years coming down there to see you ragged niggas in the penitentiary room, and I see her at the gas station. I already see the bitch looking in there. You can't leave with her. She know I'm leaving. And you can't leave, nigga. And I'm what the bitch want to see. And I'm everything a hoe on the hill. It's the gas station with a nigga in jail. Or the penitentiary system, nigga. Yeah, I break niggas' hearts, nigga. I keep telling you niggas I'm every hoe's pet. And I'm every nigga's regret. You nigga better take your eyes off of me, nigga. Because I'm going to bust your pussies wide open, nigga. Yeah, I know what the analytics say, nigga. Ain't nothing but niggas watching me grab my dick, nigga. I, I can show my dick and you niggas will sit there and watch me. You bitch-ass niggas won't take your motherfucking eyes off me because I am a walking addiction. I got you niggas captivated, mesmerized because I am the motherfucking real-life Django. Farrakhan ain't got shit on me. Yeah.
<laughs> yeah, nigga, he ain't changed no laws, nigga. And he ain't done no time for killing no white boy. When Gaddafi told Farrakhan, say, nigga, come over here and get this money. I got a money for you niggas over there. And then white folks told Farrakhan, you better not go get that motherfucking money. Guess what he did? He had another motherfucking million man march and went to Big and Jay-Z and Beyonce Neal. I know the con game, nigga. Yeah, 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 I know the con game, nigga. Yeah, yeah, I ain't, I ain't begging for no money. I've been doing the work for 10 years in my community, my city, my county, and white folks know that nigga ain't go ask for no money. You can't even give him no money. I'm going to the streets to get the money, nigga. I'm the nigga can get the money out the streets, nigga. I ain't like Farrakhan that got a stage of motherfucking me event way in Washington, D.C. and holler by, we need a thousand men. You niggas still ain't put them thousand men together, but y'all worried about what I'm saying with this big old dick down here in Texas, nigga. Our daddy come down here fucking with me. Suckers. Yeah, I talk shit, I swallow spit, I don't give a fuck about that hip-hop industry, no whack, 100, all that shit you niggas talking, y'all ain't doing no community work, nigga. I'm the community worker, nigga. I'm the community activist. You niggas ain't shit. I should've known you was And you niggas ain't this motherfucking handsome and pretty, nigga. Fresh Every time, right? You go 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and you come back to the first thing, and you're like, oh, what was I doing again? And it's like this re-entry problem. It's like the re-entry problem is not a problem. It's why you will remember and master it way better. It's forcing you, to your brain, to kind of go into a different mode. So, they, so the idea is that, yeah, there's a set of things. Getting access to, if learning programming is requires 10,000 hours of mastery and you're in a condition where access to computers is constrained, early access to computers will be an unalloyed advantage, right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't other situations that we can find um, where what looks like where access to something um, preferentially may look advantageous and not be advantageous at all. So my discussion of Dyslexia in the book is all about conditions under which dyslexia can, not knowing how to read can be advantageous. Why? Because the strategies that you might follow to work around your reading problem can end up being more helpful to you than reading. So I, I have this long thing about the David Boys, the lawyer who basically can't read and as a result developed an incredible capacity to listen and an incredible memory. If you're a trial lawyer, believe it or not, it's more important to have an amazing memory and be an incredible listener than it is to know how to read. Right? Not if you're a litigator or a corporate lawyer, but if you're a trial lawyer, yeah. Not if you're a, sorry, a corporate lawyer, but if you're a trial lawyer. So we can clearly, I don't think it's, we can clearly say, look, there are desirable difficulties and there are undesirable difficulties. Um, that said, on a broader macro level, is there a possible contradiction? Yeah. But <laughs> so what? Like, we're all we're all adults. I don't know why people are so terrified of contradiction. I think contradiction is like 
it's fine. I mean, I can identify hundreds of contradictions in my own life. All of you can. It's, in fact, I've, I've recently been, I've gotten so interested in this, I've, that I'm doing, I was, been, this next project I'm working on is all about the centrality of contradiction in human behavior. And that instead of, the idea has always been that as human beings what we seek to do is to locate and extinguish contradictions. I think that's nonsense. And there's a lot of very interesting social science research which suggests to the contrary, what we do is we exploit, we aggressively exploit our contradictions. They enable us to do all kinds of, not always good things. Um, so I'm very interested in, I was talking about this at lunch, very interested in this notion that um, we are sometimes behave generously or pro-socially pro towards an outsider group in order to justify turning on them in some future situation. And I, the, I have this, this the, the, the incredible example of this is Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, who spends the 1930s pretending, not pretending, convincing himself that he's a Zionist. He uh, reads books on Zionism, he goes to Jerusalem, he uh, hangs out with the rabbis of Vienna, he uh, teaches himself Hebrew, and he does this, and what that means is that when it comes time to, and he's responsible in the 30s for deporting thousands of Jews from Vienna to Palestine. What does that do? It enables him, when he, when he turns to exterminating Jews, to be able to say to himself, in his grotesque way, I don't hate Jews. I was deporting them, I was saving them, I was reading Hebrew and going to Jerusalem and, and at one of the death camps that he sets up, he builds a library and he imports Judaica from a prominent Jewish library in Prague. And he would go and visit this place, this grotesque concentration camp, and sit in the library and read ancient Hebrew manuscripts. He, at his core, this man had a massive contradiction, and he wasn't driven to resolve it. He used it to justify everything he did over the course of the war, right? Now, that's a horrible, extreme, grotesque example. But my point is that we all have within us these contradictions, and I, I, I think that's part of what it means to be human, and just as you can use contradictions for terrible ends, like Eichmann did, they are also, at the same time, the ways in which we explore new ideas and expose ourselves to risky things and do all kinds of things that are ultimately positive. And if you're not willing to tolerate contradiction um, in your own life, I think you're, you're, you're um, limiting yourself in a certain sense. Um, uh, you're also running. You're running huge risks. I mean, you know, like Eichmann route is the risky route, right? But at the same time, someone who insists on that everything be absolutely consistent is leading an impoverished life. Um, I think. Um, so I, 
Yeah, I try to resolve all the time. Thank you. Why don't we take one more question? In the context of Google and the innovator's dilemma that you mentioned earlier, when you are a giant, how do you stay a giant and kind of towards the book not be slayed by a David? Oh, well. Well, you know you will be eventually, right? Um, I mean, give me an example of, you know, there is these, what's fascinating about, so in your space, there's kind of IBM, which does this thing which in retrospect seems, and the answer was that the uh, people in the military police were way more satisfied with that than people in the Air Force. This was very puzzling because almost no one got promoted in the military police and everyone got promotions in the Air Force. So why would people be more satisfied in the military police? Well, the answer is that so many people got promoted in the Air Force that getting promoted was meaningless, right? Um, so few people got promoted. The, the median condition in the military police was not getting promoted. So if you didn't get promoted in the military police, you were like, well, no one is. It's fine. If you didn't get promoted in the, mil in the Air Force, oh, man, you're devastated because everyone's getting promoted, right? And if you did get promoted, it's like, who cares? Everyone's getting promoted. So it's like, do you see that the, the <laughs> it's this totally inverted thing. You think that you're making life better by promoting everyone, but you're not. You're simply creating, you're simply altering the set of existing expectations. Um, so the, so yeah, I don't know whether you can, um, messing around with hierarchies is a very, 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 very tricky business. And it's probably better just to try to avoid them when you can. Thanks. Uh, go ahead. Hi, Malcolm. Thanks for coming in. Um, my question is a little bit around, I guess, your media diet. Obviously, as someone that writes a lot about social science, you have to go through a lot of academic journals. But what I was actually really interested to see was that you had a really, I think, cogent and, and fluent conversation with Bill Simmons, often on his blog, about sports and different topics. So I was wondering a little bit about your media diet outside the academic journal sphere and like how you kind of keep your mind and horizon broad yeah. across different topics. Well, I'm a huge sports fan, so there's an enormous amount of consumption of sports-related stuff. Uh, and um, particularly these days, I, I spend an enormous amount of time watching obscure European track and field meets on sort of live streams at 2 in the morning. Um, so there's that. And then, uh, but I think, you know, my strategy has always been you can't, you have to very consciously differentiate yourself from where you think your professional peer group is going. Um, so the, to the extent that people are, my, to the extent that people migrate to things that are accessible online, I feel I should migrate to things that are inaccessible online. So the value or to the extent that people stop reading books and read, I feel I need to read more books. Um, 
So I've been what I've been trying to do is to kind of it's why I spend a lot of time in actual physical libraries reading things in hard copy because there's a kind of a serendipity that you get when you this is not in any way meant as a criticism by the way of search engines for example <laughs> which are incredibly useful but they are but they you know they also have limitations they reward a certain kind of serendipity and they punish another kind of serendipity, right? And if you really want to, if you're interested in serendipitous learning, as I am, much of what I uncover is uncovered serendipitously. You have to be a student of all of the different mechanisms of chance encounters with the unusual and the insightful. And so that means that not only do I spend a lot of time screwing around online on databases, but I also very, very consciously make sure that I go to physical libraries and walk through the stacks. And even something as simple as you're interested in one book, and then you go and you just look at all of the books that surround it. Right? And the connections are not always... The connections are... There's, there are connections between them, but it's a different kind of connection than they would be connected online. It's not a keyword connection, right? It's a thematic connection or it's a... So there's all these sorts of... You have to be a student of these kinds of... Um, of, the, of the different ways in which ideas cluster. Um, and so that... And I've been... I've thought a lot about that in recent years as a way of distinguishing myself from... Um, other journalists. Thank you. Hi, I have a quick question. In your last uh, book, Outliers, you spoke about uh, the advantages of, you know, whether it's being born in a certain year or having access to the earliest computers and stuff like that. And in this book, you have a whole new section called The Disadvantages of Being Advantageous. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you see a contradiction or if how do you reconcile the two? Yeah. Well, I have several answers to that question. Um, uh, so there's clearly a difference between... The notion that I play with in this book is called desirable difficulty. And desirable difficulty is a class of, uh, of difficulties that have paradoxical outcomes that force you to do things that end up being advantageous. So um, there's, a whole, there's a whole school of, uh, of research around these people at UCLA called the Bjorks who try and uncover specific examples of desirable difficulties. A good one would be, for example, a simple one would be um, studying strategies uh, that, to the extent that you can make your studying process more difficult, you will retain more information. So the Bjorks have these beautiful data that says if you're learning um, something very complex, um, the best thing to do is to learn it in small chunks. So say I have three tasks that require mastery. I have two choices. I can master the first, master the second, and master the third, or I can break up all the learning into 10-minute chunks and do 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. They say do the latter, even though it's harder, even though you have to start over because you have no 
incentive from 2 to 98 to try anything new. Right? Your instinct is just to play the game the way the game is supposed to be played. So had his girls been even a little bit better, they would have been worse off. Right? Yeah. So, so you're saying we should be as bad as we can be. Well, <laughs> I'm saying that there are, there are situations where being bad is highly advantageous. Um, and, you know, if you read, I don't go into this in the book, but if you've read, you know, Innovator's Dilemma, that's what Innovator's Dilemma is all about, right? The disruptive outsider is the one who is incapable of meeting the marketplace needs as the market is traditionally defined. They can't do it, right? So what do they do? They, they try a completely new half-assed approach, which in the beginning doesn't work, right? But by that very nature of trying something completely outside the mainstream, they end up upending the, um, were they any good, they would never be forced to do that. Um, so it's the same kind of principle. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book, uh, which hinders your chance of improving your success, is something that uh, you say that we are all susceptible to. Uh, and the acronym that you use is EICD, mm -hmm. Elite Institution Cognitive Disorder. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, that because actually, that's something I'm sure we don't the, know anything about. I, <laughs> I gave a talk on this at the Google Zeitgeist Conference. And because I was having fun with it, I invented the acronym for the conference. It's not actually in the book. Um, elite uh, institution cognitive disorder is the mistaken belief that attending the most elite institution you can get into is always in your best interest. This is false. Um, there are a number of many, many situations where it is not in your best interest to go to, for example, the best school you can get into, but rather it's in your best interest to go to at the very most, your second choice, and probably, ideally, your third or fourth choice. Um, the reason is as follows, that the best predictor of success in a highly competitive environment, like, for example, law school, or more relevant, the one I use in my book, is uh, getting a STEM degree, getting a science and math degree. So we science and math education of the at the university level is marked by dropout rates that are north of 50%. Most people who try to get a science and math degree fail, right? So the question is, what is the, if you would like to get a science and math degree, what is the optimal strategy? And the optimal strategy is not to go to your best, the best school you get into. Why? Because the best predictor of success in getting a degree is not your absolute level of intelligence, but your relative level of intelligence. It's your class rank, not the, uh, not the, uh, not your, um, it's your, it's your rank relative to your peers in your class, not your SAT score or your IQ. So you want to basically, anyone who, uh, the, the, if you fall in the bottom third of your class, your chances of dropping out uh, rise astronomically. 
So you should basically follow a strategy that minimizes your chances of falling in the bottom third of your class. What does that mean? Don't go to a good school. <laughs> right? Now, what's fascinating about this, the, <clears throat> the amazing thing about this is that we appear to have consistently undervalued the psychological costs of um, uh, finishing in the bottom half of any competitive situation. In other words, what we overvalue is the prestige of the institution. And what we undervalue is the cost to you of not succeeding at that institution. And so there's a beautiful illustration of this in this study that was done of economics PhDs. So what we do is we take the top 30 PhD programs in economics in America, and we break the students down by their, how they ranked in their class, um, in their graduate class. And then we look at their publication rate six years out of attaining their PhD. These are those who take the academic route. So in, in, in something like economics, we use your publication rate as a, the number of journals, of papers you get accepted by prestigious journals is used as a proxy for your success as an economist, right? What do we find when we look at that? What we find is the 95th percentile student at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, MIT, et cetera, publishes a lot of papers, as you would expect. They're brilliant. But the drop-off the drop from the 95th to the 80th percentile is astronomical. And by the time you get to the middle of the, of the PhD class at elite schools, they're not publishing at all, right? In fact, the 95th percentile student at the worst PhD program you can find will publish more and be a more successful economist than the 75th percentile student at Harvard MIT and Stanford. Now that is, there are many explanations for that, but the most parsimonious explanation is, it is so traumatic and humiliating and overwhelming to be in an elite program and see a handful of people just beat the crap out of you, that you are permanently impaired. The other, the, and my message at Google Zeitgeist was that the, that I think the logical response to this line of reasoning is that you should hire only on the basis of class rank and not on the basis of institution. In other words, you should have don't ask, don't tell uh, when it comes to the name of your monster Cody. You can go get all you can go get all them OGs that the, that's that's on camera talking and ask them to show you how they live and where they live, and you will see, man, they really homeless. OG Percy is a crack addict, huh? Everybody know he smoked crack, huh? That's a dope fiend. That's a dope fiend, huh? I ain't never smoked crack. So I'm saying, okay, that's why they love DMX. They loving the dope. Man, this is the dope crack babies. They despise their mamas, but they idolize the dope fiend rappers, the dope fiend gangsters, but they resent their mothers. They resent their grandmothers for being dope fiends. Only to look at these men to idolize, not 
look up to. They don't look up to these men. They idolize. So I'm saying, man, uh, the only reason we went back and forward is because I spoke on something and it was right. Y'all fighting for what, homie? Y'all for to do a fight for what? Two black men for the fight for what? So now we done tricked the world to believe that only black men can solve their problems is in the boxing ring. Like yeah. you said, let's have a spelling bee, right? Man, a debate. <laughs> nigga, let's nigga, let's have a let's let's have a, a obstacle. Let's go do an obstacle course, nigga. Why you didn't tell us before we pay rent on the first? If you're not paying rent next month, we're going to use that as our security deposit to find something else. Yeah, but did and you I'm tell trying him, to make it. Did you Go tell ahead. him, listen, you're not moving right away. Takes time to That's sell a house. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no. I, didn't, I didn't. But now they don't want to pay rent. They want to use our security deposit for next month. So how do you deal with selling a property with tenants in it? Like, I ever done it, they don't want you to sell it. It sounds like they can't buy the place, you know. Definitely so, can't buy. It. You know, I'm gonna tell you. You know, you, you know what you want to do is just listen. You know, communication is is really you know if you can go there and communicate with them and say, listen, you know, the point is this: it, I can't sell nothing overnight. I'm gonna have to give you at least 30 days notice before you have to leave. Okay. When I give you the 30 days notice, then you can worry about leaving. Right now, you ain't got to move, so pay your rent and don't worry about it. And we might not even be able to sell, tell them. You know, we just we want to see right. because, you know, my family needs the money or, you know, and, you know, and, and the times are rough. What are we going to do? You got to go try to communicate with people, explain to them. And then tell them, listen, if you need help paying your rent, you know, there's agencies out there to help them too. You know, with moving, you know, whatever, you know. Right. You, you better go try to, you know, try to make up talk with them. Him. You better go talk to them. You're a smart guy. You know how to talk to people. And go talk to yeah. them and tell them, uh, and tell them, you know, listen, this is the situation. I'm not selling tomorrow. I I'm going to give you 30 days notice before you got to move. As soon as I know for sure that I'm selling it, like when you get a guy that goes hard on a contract, that's when you have to give notice. And make sure when you right. sell it, you tell them, listen, I can't sell until 30 days and, you know, give notice to tenants 30 days. But go over there and make a deal with them and kiss up and make up and okay. tell them, listen, you got to pay your rent. You know, pay your rent. Okay. I'm not selling right now. No, nothing's selling in this market. You tell them whatever the hell you got to tell them. Get that goddamn rent money. All right. All right. I was going to tell them, I plan on giving you a $500. If I do sell it, I thought... There you go. Like tell them that. But tell them, tell them you're going to give them time okay. to move. You're going to have time to move. I'm going to give you 500 okay. bucks. Everything's going to be fine. Just please work with me here. Pay the rent. Let's, you know, and just, you know, that's it. All right. Right. All right. Good luck Got to it. you. I'll be seeing you soon. I'm going to contact you when I'm coming out that way. I'll let you All buy right, me man, lunch. All right. Take care, George. All right. Bye. All right. 
So what else we got? Are we done for the night? Yeah, we have, uh, we're over, over an hour, right? right. Oh, over an hour, that's enough. I'm tired. I got to figure out what the hell I'm going to do tomorrow to straighten my life out. I appreciate all everybody that's been sending me information on how to invest money. I don't know, that goddamn, uh, what's it called? Crypto scares me. Because I don't know where the hell money's going. What does it mean? Crypto and Bitcoin and, you know, the money's just floating around or what? I don't know. We just got to say thank you to some super chats. Some people just threw. Uh, oh, throw chat. in a super chat. Let's super chat. Hey, let's have a chat. A super chat. Piranha Canals, thanks for the $10. What do you think about mobile homes on permanent foundation and land? Thanks for having part of your life on camera. Mobile homes on permanent foundations? Yep. That's a high-class mobile home, baby. Uh, I mean, you know, it depends. Is it a park? Is it sitting on land by itself? I mean, you know, everything has a value. You know, I mean, if you can rent it or if you can sell it and somebody wants to live there. You know, I've dealt with, you know, I haven't dealt with a lot with mobile homes, but manufactured housing is housing. You know, if it serves a purpose to house somebody and you collect rent, then, or somebody wants to buy it to live in, then it's got a value and you rent it out. I mean, you should be trying to rent it out cheaper because manufactured housing is a lot less value, you know, considerably than the um, stick-built housing. So, you know, it's fine. I, I mean, I used to, you know what I made a lot of money on? The manufactured housing, they used to bring them in by trucks. But they bring in 140 of them and, you know, and they all set up like fourplexes. It's called cardinal housing. I owned a lot of cardinal housing that was built back in the 80s. And it was fine. I bought it. I fixed it. I rented it. I sold it. I mean, anything is has a value if it's livable and there's somebody that wants to live in it and pay for it. So, yeah, do it. Do anything you can to make money. I don't care if it's a mobile home park or whatever it is. As long as it's legal and and somebody it's decent enough for somebody to live in and you can make money on it, do it. What else you got? Shaw Merritt. Thanks for the four ninety nine. Ben, you should buy the land next to Madeira Beach Marina and build a nice condo or hotel. Madeira Beach Marina, I think all that property was already bought up and a big hotel just went up. If that's what you're talking about, I don't know. I'll look into it. Madeira Beach Marina. But I think it's already been done and there's big development plans going on right now. But I did bid on all that land, but then I got outbid. I'm not a developer. I ain't putting out no big money on development. What else you got? William Burkhead, thanks for the $5. Ben, did you ever take downtime once you made a few million? <coughs> How do you avoid burnout? When is the next seminar? Thank you. I mean, you know, I, I definitely, you got to take downtime once you make your money. And, you know, you got to enjoy life. I've done plenty of vacations, traveling, you know, not as much as I want to. But let me tell you. I'm going to be free from this prison in four more years, baby. Maybe three if you graduate a year early. If you really cared about me and you really wanted me to enjoy my life and start my retirement and be free, he'll do it in about three years. Okay? We'll see. I'm happy to do it. Good. Let's happy. see you do it. So, anyway, um, what else you got? Jake. Why? Thanks for the four ninety nine, Ben. I'm closing on my first deal in two weeks. Thanks to you and your family. 
Dave Sip Farrakhan broke. So, nigga, I'm trying to give me some goddamn money, uh, peel me some money, touch me some bitches, Mac and Slackjack, <laughs> go fuck on the beach, uh, lay in a hot tub, nigga, and pop grapes in my mouth, and, yeah, and fuck plenty of bitches. But, yeah, nigga. Dude. That's what I'm saying. You know, like, that type of lifestyle, entertainment, shit like that, you don't be worried, yeah. like, people trying to cancel you, stop opportunities. Man, I've been like doing that before I got here. I've been fucking bitches. Oh, nigga, I've been a hell of a <laughs> nigga. So, nah, who go? Listen, homie, can't nobody stop no hell of a nigga. Man, can't nobody. Nick Cannon ain't no hell of a nigga. He let them stop him down. He let them kick. He supposed to go do his own motherfucking thing. Start doing his own goddamn show. Man, can't nobody stop no hell of a nigga unless they kill him. And even if they kill him, can't nobody stop him. Nigga still playing Nipsey Hustle. Nigga still playing Tupac. So you can't stop no hell of a motherfucking nigga. For so. So no, man. Oh. No, man. Nigga better not fuck with me. <laughs> you, know, you know, earlier you had uh, spoke on uh, Farrakhan shit like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't fuck with Farrakhan. Yeah, what's your uh, what's your? Issue I used to be a Muslim. Oh, uh, this my issue, homie. Uh, we gotta listen to a man. Yeah, yeah. Why God gotta tell him everything, and he don't tell us nothing. Why God teach man? No, homie. Why, why, man? Why, why we got to have a man? And this man don't seem to have no flaws, but all us got flaws. He ain't got no flaws. We don't know what he do wrong. And at least y'all know I smoke weed. I cuss. I call a woman a bitch. Oh, <laughs> uh, so my flaws is shown, right? Uh, Obama, man, this man didn't have no flaws. Nah, homie, them ain't our men. We need to see men with flaws. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't follow no man, homie. I ain't have no daddy, so what the fuck I'm going to follow Farrakhan for? He followed Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad followed Farad Muhammad. All these niggas following, man, fuck them niggas, homie. I need to see something else other than a nigga talking, telling me about a book he done read. Nigga, why we can't see his spirit like we seen grandmama and them spirit in that kitchen making that food, nigga? We saw them women's spirit, nigga, when we were sick and they took us to the doctor. So how I'm going to reject, nigga, what she gave me, the love I got from this woman who told me about the God she served. Ain't now nigga gave, Farrakhan ain't gave us that love. He ain't gave, he ain't fed the village like Muriel and Mama and them feed these fed people. All the niggas that got to know Farrakhan got to go to jail to know him, homie. We don't know him from the world. You was blessed to know him through your grandmother. But because of who your grandmother was, you got the favor from him. Nigga, if your grandmother's, you see what I'm saying? Your grandmother. Yeah. So, uh, it's not to, I ain't, I ain't got no leader. I come from some old niggas don't hear nothing Farrakhan got to say. And I ain't never heard him say kill no white person, huh? Now, I don't promote killing in nobody. But nigga, I done participated in some things. <laughs> I done participated in some things, nigga. And what I participated in and what we were doing, 
to white people who we thought was our enemy based on what we heard the old niggas say, man, on her Farrakhan or no other person talk like that. They ain't really mad at white folk. So I'm saying, oh, man, he talked good for them jailhouse niggas. They don't have no identity as no man. I don't speak Arabic. I don't know now slave that did. I told you I can trace my name back to the plantation. And I talked to people that were born in the 30s, in the 40s, right now today. And they say, no, nah, man, we don't want to hear nothing them niggas talking about with no Quran. So, you know, what changed for you? Like, because you say you was practicing. Yeah, yeah, I was Muslim. So, I didn't want to stop eating pork. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. a Muslim who never quit eating pork. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I snuck and ate it for a while. And since I was the gang leader, I said, fuck it, yeah, nigga, I ate pork in front of them niggas. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they came, they had a pizza party one time. And and, and them niggas had an all cheese pizza that was Muslim. And that motherfucking pepperoni and sausage with them peppers on that motherfucker looked way better than that cheese pizza. <laughs> so, yeah, I publicly ate pork in front of the Muslim niggas in uh, the Imam Omar Sharif. Yeah, so ever since then, I've said, yeah, fuck that shit. <laughs> I was playing anyway. Yeah, my mama, Jesus, love it. I really love Jesus. I was just being rebellious because I was mad at God for letting me get locked up for killing that white man. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wasn't no real motherfucking Muslim. And don't no real Muslim blow themselves up like the real Muslim. Them the real motherfucking Muslim. Yeah, I ain't gonna lie. I, be, I, don't, I don't know what they teaching them. But whatever it is, it's, it's some shit. Cause I don't know no other religion that'll kill themselves. Yeah. These 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 black Muslims, these niggas just playing. These niggas just angry at their daddies and and barking at white folk. You ain't never seen none of these Muslim niggas blow up a car. Yeah, they don't even know. Dedicated for real. Yeah, yeah, them (laughs) niggas just sell newspapers and fruits and wear bow ties. Them other Muslims don't even wear bow ties. Yeah, them other white boy Muslims and long real Muslims, they don't even wear bow ties. They wear dresses. Escalade or his navigator blocking the damn boat. The keys are with him out. Who the hell knows where across the state? And I gotta get the goddamn boat out of there. And uh, that was a fiasco. Does anybody want to buy a 27 foot Formula PC? Brand new paint. Come on, we're lowering the price. Brand new paint. That boat is beautiful and it runs perfect. I'm telling you now. It did run good. I'll tell you what, it's worth 50 grand all day long. 30 grand right now. 30, Contact yeah, Rafal. 30 grand. You got to pick it up. And I can't guarantee the trailer, no. Because the trailer's not mine. But I'll try, I'll help you get a trailer. And the trailer ain't going to cost you no more than a grand or two. Yeah, go to okay, it. Okay, come on. Come on down and look at that boat.
What's the name of uh, Justin's uh, truck place he got Go at? to Ameritruck Sales if you need a truck. Is that the same name? He normally changes his name so. all the Does time because he? he's always in trouble or something. I don't know. Oh. It's on Highway 19, Ameritruck Sales, and it's call us and let's do it. All right, what else you got? AJ White, thanks for the $20. Thank you very Appreciate much. Appreciate it. David Almendarez, thanks for the $2. Shout out to Crazy Jewish. Crazy Jewish. For four ninety nine. Cheap Jew. Ben, are you looking forward to Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur. I don't even have a yarmulke. I mean, you know, honestly, I'm I'm not religious, so you know, the holidays are the holidays are the holidays. That's not true. You are religious on Jewish holidays. You turn religious. He turns into a real... Can I say Jew? Yeah. A Jew. And you're a liar. Not a liar. You are a liar. How many times have I ever been to synagogue do you know of the whole time you've been on this earth? How many times? It's not that. How many times? It's in our house. It's what? Here. You don't he know what Jewish is. Let me tell you. Jew. You don't even know what Jewish is. I'm serious. They got so many things going on. You he turns into your a real Jew. Quiet before I make you go get bar mitzvahed. You know what the Jews will do all they're drinking? I didn't even get a bar mitzvah. I didn't get one. I'll get you one. I'm good. You ain't going to do it. Okay. I didn't even do it. All right. Move on. What else you got, Jew boy? IGH Properties. Thanks for the $49.99. All right. Big money for file. You're going to be eating some sausage tonight. And maybe a bite. (laughs) Don't take that wrong. Anyway. What else you got? (laughs) David Almendrez, thanks again for $5. When's Mike Bonus and Polly going to be on the podcast? Mike Bonus is a pain in my onus. Okay? You better get out there and you better get the goddamn vacancies we're getting in retail. We just heard from a mattress store that's going dark. All right? He's sitting on plenty of empty space and he ain't getting it rented. And in, I don't know. You know, it's a tough time, a tough market, but. Mike Bonus has also got to try to help me with investments. Uh, I'll get him on there. I'll get him on there. He'll be around. What else we got? Paulie. Paulie's out there taking care of pot mills all over the damn state. That guy goes, travels hundreds and hundreds of miles a day. A day. Yeah, a day. Has to go to this building or that building over here and all in the middle of nowhere. What else you got? The doctor, thanks for the 100 bucks. $100 must be from Rich Doctor. He must be a plastic surgeon. Hey, doctor, I hope uh, I hope this is not Medicaid money he's giving us. Uh, anyway, so thank you very much, doctor. Thank you very much. There's, there is your $100. I'm probably a grand or two deep in these super chats. Ten grand still stands to swim in the Mala's Lazy River. Do I have to be here? <laughs> the doctor, send us an email and then we will contact you. Ask Ben on Ben. Ten Ma. grand, that's com. a lot of money. Consult with Ben. Let's have a consultation, doctor. Yeah. I'll give you a consultation, doctor. How about that for a change? The shoe's on the other foot. All right, what else we got? Any callers? Nobody's calling in today. We can go home, go eat, go to sleep, go to hell. I mean. Yeah, we can get a caller right now. I need a cigarette. Don't tell your mother I'm smoking in the house. Hello? Hey, it's Ben. How are you today? How can we help you? 
Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, what's up? I, who is this again? Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Did you not want me to call you? This is Ben Rella oh. from the goddamn <laughs> Life for Sale. What the you, hell do you want? How you doing? I'm all right. What's up? What do you got? I don't know if you remember me. You came to the Homestyle Restaurant. You did that video. The Homestyle Restaurant. You guys went. Uh, you guys closed up, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I'm sorry. How's your parents doing? They're okay. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, it's just no. It's okay. It was. It was, it was sold. Yeah. Well, I hope things work out for you guys. Thank you. Now what are you Appreciate doing? It. Now what are you doing? Where were now, you from? You're from, you're, wait, you're from, you're from Serbia or where were you from? I forgot. Albania. Albania. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you doing now? So now I just acquired a property here in uh, Newport Ritchie. It happened right before Corona went mainstream. Everyone kept saying, you know, it was a big debate if I should get it or not. I thought the virus was just at the time, right before March, it wasn't anything crazy going on. What kind so of property? I went ahead and did get it. What kind of property are we uh, talking about? What kind of property are we talking about? What kind? It's just a single family home. All right, so you bought a single family house, and what's the story? Yeah. Was it occupied when you bought? Is it a rental? Was it empty? What's the story? Yeah. It was. It was occupied when I bought it. I got it off market through a friend who knew somebody that was liquid, liquidating his portfolio. So I got extremely lucky. How much you it pay? Wasn't How much you pay? To be sold. 80,000. Uh, 80, All right, so you spent you bought a house, it's rented out. How much is the tenant paying you? Knocked down Saddam Hussein's statue and took you motherfuckers all well. Fuck you Muslims over there. And you Afghanistan Muslims, you ain't still been able to beat America, nigga. I am a natural born American citizen and we hate Muslims. I am a natural born American citizen. I put my hand over my chest when the, they sing the national anthem. I think it's disgraceful for any nigga to kneel when that white boy national anthem come on and you niggas ain't killed no white boy to kneel. Yeah, kill the white boy to kneel, nigga, until the end, stand up and put your motherfucking hand over your heart and sing that motherfucking national anthem with us, nigga. You, you, you go to McDonald's, don't you? Yeah, you niggas say, man, fuck you. I ain't never in my life met a motherfucking Muslim at the family reunion. Never. I ain't never met a goddamn Muslim at the family reunion. It's all niggas. And when we get through praying at Christmas in the family reunion from mama to mama seal, nigga, everybody hollering in Jesus' name. I ain't never in my life heard a motherfucker scream, assalamu alaikum, till I landed in jail. Yeah, yeah, I ain't never heard a motherfucker say assalamu alaikum till a nigga went to jail. Yeah, nigga didn't know what the fuck that was. So all you niggas take your motherfucking ass to the penitentiary, go down there, read some books, fuck your few niggas, or fuck your few punks, or have your few fights, smoke you some weed, drink you some hooch. When you get through tired of fighting and fucking punks, you niggas want to pick up the Quran and, and, and have Jumar. 
I ain't, I ain't got no leader. I come from some old niggas don't hear nothing Farrakhan got to say. And I ain't never heard him say kill no white person, huh? Now, I don't promote killing in nobody. But, nigga, I done participated in some things. <laughs> I done participated in some things, nigga. And what I participated in and what we were doing to white people who we thought was our enemy based on what we heard the old niggas say, man, I don't hear Farrakhan or no other person talk like that. They ain't really mad at white folk. So I'm saying, oh, man, he talk good for them jailhouse niggas that don't have no identity as no man. I don't speak Arabic. I don't know now slave that did. I told you I can trace my name back to the plantation. And I talked to people that were born in the 30s, in the 40s, right now today. And they say, no, nah, man, we don't want to hear nothing them niggas talking about with no Koran. So, you know, what changed for you? Like, because you say you was practicing. Yeah, yeah, I was Muslim. So, I didn't want to stop eating pork. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. a Muslim who never quit eating pork. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I snuck in 80 for a while. And since I was the gang leader... I said, fuck it, yeah, nigga. I ate pork in front of them niggas. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they came, they had a pizza party one time. And 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 them niggas had an all cheese pizza that was Muslim. And that motherfucking pepperoni and sausage. You have to have people with different characteristics, different strengths, weaknesses, traits. Um, and that really worked out for us at the agency. Um, but at home it's definitely much more of a struggle. Um, trying to keep balance. Um, and I don't know if it's just because at home is like 24 seven where, you know, in an op you get together, you play in the op, everybody does their part, you know, but at home it's a little bit messier. Yeah. So. No, I mean, that, that's a huge, a huge change that you made from being a spy in the CIA mm -hmm. Or uh, you were a, a targeter, a kinetic targeter. No, 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 not kinetic. They did not blow people up. Oh, you didn't, you didn't blow people up. <laughs> operational, right. operational. You were, a, you targeter. were one of the nice. Yeah, targeters. <laughs> that was the nice one. <laughs> the the one that was gonna ha get somebody to come and buy you a drink. Oh yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> to be our friend and spy, obviously. <laughs> so yeah, so like, what was that like? Was it something? in you that happened like was there some sort of some sort of event that made you make that decision of becoming a, a spy to motherhood and family life so once we were pregnant we got pregnant when we were overseas and then we came back um right before we had the baby like a month before we had the baby um Andy was moving into management. So I was always a very behind the scenes. Like, um, I wanted to just specialize in what I did. I was not interested in moving up the ladder or any of that. Um, but Andy was moving into management. Um, and just like I, I'm guessing any place else, like the higher you rise, the more hours you work. Um, we were back in the DC area. There was tons of, you know, commuting time was just huge. And, um, and we were still trying to live 
our life where we like we had one car and we had like our you know our little apartment like our kind of minimalistic life but it was getting harder and harder because he was having to go in early and stay in late and then I'm stuck alone with the baby um, after I'm working too and we're trying to balance daycare and all the things that parents everywhere go through um and I think for for me because I hadn't really done the critical thinking at that time because I I had I was in the mindset of like I have arrived and this is what we're going to do 